Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. I mean, the first thing is I've had to be adaptable and flexible over time. And, you know, my needs change and the ability to meet those needs has changed. And so early in recovery, obviously, it was big on daily meetings. It was being in therapy. At the time, I was on medications. I've actually been off medications now for about five years. And um, because I'm in a space where, you know, I just don't need them, um, I will go back on them tomorrow if I do. But it's, you know, physical exercise, therapy, meetings, um, having some sort of semblance of structure and routine is, is big for me. Our guest this week, Dr. Adam Hill. Right now, a few words from our sponsors. This episode of Knocking Doors Down is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add the Knockin' Doors Down podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. This episode of Knockin' Doors Down is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code KDD at manscaped.com. That's manscaped.com and use the code KDD. Inside the 5150 LTM studios, this is Knocking Doors Down, a podcast all about those who have gone through adverse times, turned it into their advantage, finding joy, passion in their lives. I'm your host, Jason Lachance, alcoholism, some childhood trauma, sexual abuse, and more. My co-host, Mikey Nilrocky, well, he's been busted a time or two. Yeah, what are you going to do? What's <laughs> going on, people? Our guest this episode is Dr. Adam Hill, a really wonderful gentleman. You wouldn't think normally within the medical community that there's a lot of addiction, but there is not only addiction and a high suicide rate that people were unaware of. And so it was really great speaking with Adam because he sheds a lot of light on that that I was totally unaware of. And you know me, I love talking to doctors. (laughs) Everybody knows this because it's impossible to get a hold of mine. So when we have an opportunity to interview one i'm like hey now that i got you here this hurts it's been hurting for about a week so it was nice having him on it was a real pleasure and he was he was he was sweet about it did you ask did you ask dr hill about the mole on your back he said he was going to refer me to somebody else yeah he wasn't taking new patients oh well uh you guys are really going to enjoy this not only that uh dr hill is from indiana so we do uh kind of razz each other about uh being fans of different basketball well he likes the wrong one He's a Pacers fan. He's not a Warriors fan, so he got the wrong team. But it's okay. He was still a good guy. Nothing yeah. against him. So we get into his uh, addiction, um, how he came out of it, how he's dealt, especially during these COVID times, working in the medical field. He is also an oncologist to children mm-hmm. at a children's hospital, so definitely having to deal with a lot of that stuff. He's incredibly uplifting, a blast. We have some fun random questions. He's a Tom Petty fan, as am I. And Who isn't? Right? Yeah. How does that come into place? So uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Of course, we can't do this podcast without 5150 LTM. And you, yes, you can get 20% off by just clicking that link in the podcast description and using the code what, Mikey? KDD20. Yes, KDD20. KDD20. 
click it in the podcast description. You get 20% off at checkout. And again, thank you to 5150 LTM. We can't do any of this without them. Welcoming to Knocking Doors Down, Dr. Adam Hill. Thank you very much for your time, good sir. Yeah, thank you both. Uh, Pleasure to be with you today. I love talking to doctors because mine's impossible to get a hold of, so uh, I need to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'll pass on a message for you. Yeah, yeah, right on. I see you drinking out of an Indiana Pacers mug, boy. uh, We're going to have to cut this interview short. (laughs) as As a basketball fan, man, and I loved Reggie Miller, it was always so heartbreaking for me. He's like, ah, can't this team just get one championship? That's right. Yeah, I, I grew up with uh, Reggie Miller for sure, and everybody here in in Indiana has a basketball hoop in their backyard. So uh, I'm a pretty hardcore Butler basketball fan. That's my uh, alma mater, and uh, they went out uh, pretty unceremoniously last night in the Big East tournament. But uh, <laughs> uh, definitely a big basketball fan here. Awesome. It's okay. I'm a Warrior fan, so we're used to being humbled, especially these past couple <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, I was born in 78 as a uh, Warriors well, slash Lakers fan, so I definitely had some bad years of basketball as well. Um, well, we want to uh, definitely talk about your book, which, of course, is, is available. People can get it on Amazon. The link is in the podcast description, Long Walk Out of the Woods. Uh, what made you, as a, a doctor you know, working in the medical profession, finally decide it was the right time to write a book put this out and shed some light on an area until, you know, I really looked into um, speaking with you, had no idea the amount of substance abuse that can go on in the medical profession, as well as the suicide rate and and depression, uh, which often leads to those thoughts of suicide. Yeah, you know, the impetus for me really is a handful of years into recovery, um, lost a friend and a colleague to suicide. And um, at that time, I, I, you know, I was working my own program, I was in recovery, but I just felt this piece of me that was um, disingenuous, not living an authentic life that I had so much more that hopefully I could give to reach out to people who were struggling, especially in not just the colleagues I work with, but the patients and families that I'm privileged to, to see every single day that maybe there's a greater ability to connect um, in our own stories and that. And, and it was through that, honestly, that it, it it started to, for me, like shake off this cloak of shame and this next chapter of my own recovery journey where I really just started to, to uh, live openly and honestly. And, and then shortly after that, it, it started to pour out of me. I, I wrote the book as, I initially tell people it's therapy, to be honest. I wanted to get it out, get it out of my head, get it out into paper, and and eventually it crafted into it to what it became. But um, and and now I hope you know it reaches people that um, need to hear a message of hope. Um, so it all kind of you know came out came out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what for you though was some of those experiences because i man just uh you know hearing your story even from your residency and some of the challenges there you know people don't realize i, I think there was a, a you made reference to a car accident when you're getting an average of about three hours of sleep a night as well um can you kind of sh- maybe shed a little bit of light on that or what that is like for people that are 
becoming doctors and don't understand the amount of dedication that is put into it and why that can often probably lead to the, you know, the depression, the suicidal thoughts, some of those that can uh, end up committing suicide as well. Yeah, I think that there, you know, there is a fair amount of just built in uh, structural um, barriers to just be able to take care of yourself that exist in high pressure, stressful work environments. And it's not unique only to medicine, you know, but in my lens and what I have lived experience in is, is that that you're always tasked, ingrained, taught to put the needs of other people above your own and 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 really to those severe of degrees sometimes having a handful of sleep hours of sleep for a week and coming into call into the hospital every single night or working 30 hour shifts or 36 hours at a time and and it's this cultural expectation of what we teach each other in medicine of what you need to do to succeed to be um, great in your profession and and it has you know obviously uh, significant detrimental health effects uh, both physically and mentally on on the workforce and and that is a piece of this evolving epidemic of suicide and 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 substance use disorder that happens as well as mental health conditions that remain untreated in our workforce is that um you know we just don't uh permit the time and space to take care of ourselves first let alone our loved ones our family mm -hmm. our children um and that's a big focus of, of mine is getting that balance right yeah. Well, and you speak so highly, of course, of, of your, your lovely wife that was uh, there through with you through it all. Um, what, how much of a, an impact did she have, not only on, of course, leading to your sobriety, putting in the work, and, and you have two daughters, correct? Two daughters and a son. Oh, and yeah. a son now. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, when I wrote the book, I had two children. So uh, we, we have a third now. That's awesome. You got to rewrite it. <laughs> or just got added in the chapter. <laughs> when the baby grows up, she's going to be like, I, I wasn't included in this work. What, what is on? going on, Dad? <laughs> uh, that, that's a heck of a load, you know, because I, I have a son and a daughter, so I know I know of each, but man, sometimes the, the boy is you know, much different than the girl and the rambunctiousness and something else. That's a hell of a dynamic. I'll tell you what, the four-year-old girl is going to be the uh, <laughs> test of my lifetime. <laughs> uh, well, let's jump back to uh, to Adam as a little boy. What uh, what was uh, growing up like? What were you like as a kid? And, and how did you eventually take an interest in the medical field? Sure. You know, you know, I had a, a really normal childhood, to be honest, uh, really loving parents. I grew up in a small town, rural farm community in, in Indiana, um, hardworking parents. My dad was a, a mental health uh, therapist and counselor, mm. worked with teenagers, young adults with their own mental health conditions and addiction stories. And and I saw, you know, that from the outside um, growing up, even inside my own home of the compassionate empathic care that he gave to others, how he poured out to other people as a, what he, you know, saw as a, um, an ability to serve. And, and so I saw that, um, and I, you know, really wanted to be able to do something in my life that had that kind of impact of giving back or to helping other people in their moments of, of need. And, and that definitely crafted, you know, my professional arc and what eventually became going into medicine. <laughs> I, you know, I did have, um, I was a pretty shy, introverted kid. 
I um, had a lot of social anxiety and some awkwardness and a difficulty assimilating into school. I was that kid who hid behind the coat rack <laughs> every, every morning and the teacher had to coax out and drag out into the classroom um, and who always wanted to run down the hall and visit my sister who was two classrooms, you know, grades above me. And, and, you know, out of that did come a fair amount of bullying and even physical, um, you know, trauma and getting beat up and thrown in trash cans and just um, years of of that, that I think I didn't really unpack until my thirties when I got into (laughs) recovery that, that it did influence how I saw the world, how I interacted with groups of people and, and that social element that I had a lot of social angst and, Um, and that built, uh, and built as I got older into my teenage years and, and even into my early twenties, um, and eventually became part of my alcohol story. Yeah. Well, what, what was it like, uh, you know, going in through high school where you, did you find yourself that, uh, maybe eventually going to the parties and stuff like that, that you were able to connect Did that roll over maybe until your college years or. Yeah. You know, I. On the outside, I think most people who knew me in high school uh, thought, you know, I I mean, I was uh, a perfectionist, so I was a high achiever, both in athletics and academics. I was on an all-state tennis player and uh, ran track and, you know, high achiever in grades. And I think a lot of people saw me probably as as somebody who had it all figured out. and and in the inside, you know, I was uh, still quite fragile and 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 broken at times. And the connected dots to uh, to drinking started when I was about fourteen. And I could go out to a party, you know, have a handful of drinks, and just that social lubricant, that numbing away of anxiety, that you know, fitting in. Um, and that I really started to feel that relationship with alcohol even then and then it evolved you know to our late high school of i mean i remember being able to drink a case of beer when i was 18 years old you know and and that's not normal <laughs> you know <laughs> like but over the course of an entire day being able to do that when friends would have five or six and and it just didn't affect me the same way and and I didn't connect the dots. I didn't have ramifications. I was a binge drinker, occasional drinker for most of my teens and twenties. Um, but I, but I knew, and I felt that like, this is not normal and and I don't process or handle this the way that other people do. Yeah, no, that uh, definitely smacks me right in the face. Uh, you know, going out, I could go out with guys, you know, 150, 200 pounds more than me. And, uh, you know, here I am drinking them under the table and I'm like, wow, what's wrong with you guys? And that not really changing, you know, I, I, I think people don't realize that about us that are addicts, you know, alcoholics, our brain and body just do not process it the way that a normal person does. Yeah. And people would always tell me, you know, I didn't even know that you were drinking. Right. Yeah. Like, I, and, and that almost gave me this false sense of security and almost pride in that I could hide this away. Right. That, bolstered up the ability to live in secrecy for a long time is that people would say that to me and I didn't seem affected the, the way that, um, you know, I possibly was. So, yeah. 
what what was uh, then? Let's talk a little bit about the college years. Um, you ended up at, at Duke University, if I remember correctly, right? Um, I was at Duke University for one of my medical training. Mm. Um, uh, so I was at Butler University for my undergraduate college, which is here in Indianapolis. Uh, and uh, 2010, 2011 Final Four uh, or fi- National Championship basketball team, Butler University. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about it because at this time you're probably starting to enter your residency period, correct? Yeah. So, you know, I get through, get through college and, um, and even, so, you know, you did four years of college and then four years of medical school. Um, it was really, you know, I had this ongoing sort of just binge unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but still it wasn't a part of my daily, weekly, or honestly, even monthly life at that time. Mm. It was really in medical school where, I started to have major depressive uh, disorder symptoms and, and, and um, you know, where I lost all interest in what I, in family and friends and doing things. I just had difficulty sleeping at times or other times would stay in bed for a few days at a time and trying to, you know, or experiencing those symptoms and trying to get through medical training that requires like 16 hours a day of studying. Mm-hmm was a difficult grind and uh so a lot of anxiety and depressive symptoms uh throughout that medical school time and it was the first time that i had actually sought treatment um and started on an antidepressant started seeing a a counselor and um and it worked and it helped at that time um it wasn't then sort of until as you alluded to when i started the more formal clinical medical training like in residency and then the next step after that which is a fellowship where you subspecialize in medicine that um you know alcohol started to become more and more part of the story yeah were you drinking on antidepressants as well so i was you know back then i was on wellbutrin Mm -hmm. um as the antidepressant i was on but, but once again, even through medical school, I was, you know, I would study so hard and we would have like six week chunks of time between tests, like that you would just study, 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 take all your exams and then maybe have a day or two break. Mm-hmm. And it'd be on those day or two breaks, then, you know, I would binge and sure. possibly black out or make bad decisions <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, go back to that cycle again of studying really hard, not drinking so at that at that point it was still kind of that level um and it wasn't to the daily drinking which it eventually became um you know when i was doing my clinical medicine uh like in fellowship at duke which you uh, mentioned earlier yeah mm-hmm. what well, well, for you was that a point of where you had the six weeks and then the time off and then w- was that kind of a period of of justification like shit i earned it i you know I've worked hard. This is this is my way to to vent and get it out and relax and Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean there's a part of the culture that um you know, in college binge, drink, binge drinking culture is obviously ingrained in yeah. in, in so many colleges and universities. The same is actually true in medical school is that you know, um, you'll have these round of tests or study for big board exams or things and then and then people do like all go out and let loose and, yeah. you know, um, and so there is a piece of that culture too, is like, you know, you just put life and everything on pause 
for a certain amount of time, including friends and family and <laughs> um, socialization, and you just grind. Um, so I think that, that part of that is just ingrained in, in, in what's expected. Yeah. Well, you, of course, you're a pediatric oncologist, and um, God, I can't imagine. I know that you've talked about a story of a, of a young lady who needed a bar- bone marrow transplant, Zoe. Um, do you think those kind of things, that, that that really had a taxing impact upon you? Because a lot of people, of course, if anyone's watching that's maybe trying to understand addiction, a lot of us can be really empathic. And we almost used our substance to to numb us or to overly fill in a different direction or whatever it is. Did did things like Zoe's story, who unfortunately passed away, have a lot of that impact and maybe that depression too? Yeah, I think you nailed it in terms of the, your description for me. I mean, I'm a natural empath and care deeply, and um, and I used alcohol as a, a numbing mechanism from intense emotions, whether they were sadness, sorrow, grief, um, anger, resentment, um, and so so it was. There was the, the at the time the cumulative effect of seeing tragedy, death, trauma, you know being the one to perform chest compressions on a baby and then have to tell their family that, you know, they didn't survive and, and doing that day after day, week after week, I think that cumulative trauma and not having the space to talk about it, to process it, to, to unload and to work through that um, adds up. And it, and it does for so many people that work in this, you know, um, this line of work and and once again not unique to medicine i mean these threads are the same for you know paramedics and firefighters and police officers and the military and that you gotta have spaces to to talk about what is salient and unnatural and just can be really you know um just uh yeah impactful moments of your life and so it wasn't until years later that I had the tools, the techniques, the community, the self-awareness, the insight to start unpacking that where I really f- started to feel the meaning and the purpose of showing up and being there and uh, that it was uh, a beautiful moment of life and humanity that I was able to share you know, this moment in time with this beautiful young girl who changed my life and I hopefully I had an impact in hers. and. Um, and so, you know, 10 years into recovery, I can see that. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you're right. Those things uh, weighed me down pretty significantly. Yeah, I want to bring that up because, I, I you know, in, in reading more about you and, um, and your circumstances, it always uh, harkens me back to people talking about a doctor's bedside manner. That, that maybe folks don't understand. Well, that doctor didn't have the best bedside manner and, and people maybe not understanding that sometimes if a doctor's cut and dry the best they can is that they're trying to hold it together emotionally and, and do the best with their job and with their training and knowledge that they can in a situation. Yeah, I think that that, that can be true for some people. I mean, in any line of work, there are you know, people that just aren't great communicators or maybe just even not nice people. But (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think that that's true as well. But um, but you're right. You know, there is a survival um, technique that um, that sometimes is even taught in medicine not to get connected to your patients, not to care too deeply, to draw really concrete boundaries 
and so that you don't get sucked in and you can't fill back up your own cup to be able to walk home and take care of your family. And so, and, and I, I do see a lot of people that are hardened that way. Um, there were some that intentionally do that as this shield of protection against their own, um, you know, boundaries for me, you know, that always felt, uh, disingenuous that, mm. you know, I, I came into this as a, you know, wanting to uh, practice um, compassion and humanity and connection to other people. And that, you know, hopefully I can use my gifts as a communicator and an empath to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I was at an active addiction, I felt that, you know, that I was pulling back and pulling back and maybe that I wasn't as effective in my whole sense and being and being there because I was so sick. Um, and, but I was doing that out of self-preservation and maybe preservation for my addiction too. Sure. Uh, and, um, but I've learned over time, you know, how to be able to do that and give myself wholly uh, to the people I'm caring for and then bring it back to a centered space where I can, live my life and raise my kids and kiss my wife and hug my parents. Um, they're vaccinated now. So, <laughs> I, um, and, and do that in a, in a balanced way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now was it when the drinking really got out of hand, was it evident with your loved ones, especially your wife? Yeah. So, you know, we lived across the country because my family and her family is all from the Midwest. So living out in North Carolina, we were quite isolated. And so, you know, there weren't a lot of, you know, my friends or her friends or our family were, were around to to notice and they knew how busy I was. And it became a convenient excuse not to keep in touch with people. Uh, when you're in that intense level of medical training. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that, the isolationism was self-fulfilling, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But my but my wife uh, distinctly knew and felt it and lived through it and, um, and tried to, you know, coax me into um, soft accountability in the, in the initial stages and, um, and eventually very loving, stern, ultimatums of accountability, which I needed uh, yeah. to be able to get the help that, uh, that I really needed. Yeah. Well, what were you starting to see in, not only within, the, you know, your residency by the time that you're practicing, but, uh, you know, you started to see you, you, your fellow doctors and, and medical field people really struggling with depression and even losing someone to uh, suicide, as I recollect. Yeah, you know, when I was in the midst of it myself, obviously, I was in the midst of a very selfish disease and, and, and space. And so, you know, it took years of crawling out of that hole to even wipe away the fog uh, from my own eyes to be able to see clearly of that this was larger than something that I had lived through and struggled, that this is really something actually fairly common in the medical community, but yet completely unspoken of. And it's this you know, silent curriculum of just hidden agendas and often just stigmatized and pushed away into closets of secrecy that, that really, um, you know, I, I felt like, you know, maybe this is my opportunity to, to shine a light on this so that other people will feel comfortable and in, in getting help. And, and the truth is I've actually lost five colleagues oh my to, to suicide in my career. And, and I, and I actually, yes, just yesterday, um, 
a, a friend of mine's colleague uh, died by suicide um, and just sent me an email last night from their program director and they were mourning and grieving. And so this just happened in, in the last few days and no one I knew personally, but, you know, a, a, a friend of a friend. And, yeah. and, and these stories, unfortunately, happen every day. And um, and there are a few that I think of on the national stage brought some attention. Lorna Breen, who died by suicide after working in New York City in COVID units and um, you know, died last year. And her family has done a fair amount of um, legislation work and just trying to advocate um, on a national stage for attention to this. I hope my work contributes to that, too. Um, so that people don't feel ashamed. And um, even more importantly, we break down some of the systematic barriers that are in place to get people into treatment, uh, which exist in the medical field um, pretty abundantly. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, you know, is it because obviously anyone that's a doctor, my gosh, you, you put <laughs> an incredible amount of work and, and, and this isn't to, to putting one down, but that people maybe don't understand the amount of time, dedication, uh, not just to the process to become a, a, anyone that's working in the medical field, but how you talk about the isolation, time away from family. Um, and they get to that point and they're practicing and all the stuff they put their lives into this point that do you find, and especially with your own experience, that sometimes this is something that, that people don't want to report to the medical board because they're afraid that their practice is put on hold, everything they put into it, that, that they're, you know, that maybe they won't get a chance to re-enter the medical profession or like, you know, you said stigmatized with, with that forever. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And, and, and there are, you know, a fair amount of studies out there that show the data on this, that, you know, a majority of individuals don't report um, what they're going through, whether it's mental health uh, diagnoses or, or, you know, substance use disorder, or even being in recovery um, because of fear of repercussions or ramifications uh, that they'll have to report those things. Because we have this really archaic system in medicine that although we treat these as medical conditions and realize the pathophysiology, the pharmacology, the addiction, you know, condition as a medical condition, we still stigmatize and treat our own within our own walls of saying that this is a weakness, a moral failing, a red flag, something that should be, you know, treated differently. Um, and, and so very much put these roadblocks to the extent of you know, having to disclose what medications you're on, um, on a job application or every year that you recertify to keep your medical license, having to put the medications you're on. Have you, have you been in mental health counseling or treatment that we make these like anomalous questions of aberrance that like you have to <laughs> report when the truth is almost anybody who sees death, dying, trauma, tragedy, suffering every single day needs a space to unpack that. And mental health therapy and counseling should be, in my opinion, a prerequisite, <laughs> yeah. um, at least concurrent to what we're doing every day. Um, and then we got to quit making it abnormal. And, and so there's a lot of fear about that. And what happens if then, you know, you report and and I write about a little bit of my book, the story that then, you know, happened and I had to disclose and, um, and I'm not here to, 
put down or say there's not a place for accountability and accountability programs. And I needed that and it helped and I had structure and routine and those things helped keep me sober. Um, but asking those questions for most people is where they stop seeking help and uh, they either just don't get treatment or self-medicate um, or for doctors who have prescription writing abilities, sometimes just write it themselves and, you know, treat themselves, which yeah. is dangerous in its own right. I could only imagine, you know, with the course, not only with the opioid crises, but uh, the crises, but I've definitely had read some, some research about that where there was, you know, like you said, medical professionals writing their own prescriptions and, and there you go, you're off to the races pretty quick. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the the data on actual substance use disorder in medicine is so underreported, it's hard to know what the true numbers are. But there are a few studies out there that have showed, you know, as high as potentially twice as high as the general population that these things exist. And, and, and same with mental health conditions, too. I mean, we take a subset of really high achievers who in um, generally healthy patient population of medical or of uh, college graduates with low rates of anxiety and depression, lower than the general population. And it increases like tenfold two years into medical school from to like 30% of people that have depression. Um, and so that, you know, in itself is a commentary on the environment that we're putting people in and not the people. And I think we're still stuck in this language of the conversation of, you know, well, it's something that I did wrong or it's my fault mm -hmm. or it's my, you know, mental weakness um, instead of really looking. And I think that this is going to be more and more and more evident in the next few years after the fallout of the mental health crisis of this pandemic is to say the environments that we've placed people in, you know, and from um, many different aspects of how we've not cared for people that it'll have long lasting ramifications. Yeah. I, you yeah. know, and hearing you uh, talk about that, Adam, I think it's, it, you know, it's so similar to anyone that is performing at a high level, you know, be it, be it a high performing athlete or a, an actor, a mus musical act that goes around the country, you know, there, it, you're so isolated away from a quote unquote normal routine, a normal life. Like you said, 36 hours on the job. I, I can't even fathom if I, if I don't get six to eight hours of sleep a, a night now, I, I'm total shit. It's like, ah, oh, forget this day. My, you know, my anxiety spikes or whatever it is. And people don't understand that those in the medical profession are performing at this high level every single day. There's not an off season. Yeah. I can't do shit after seven hours or before seven hours of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and then for me, like, you know, I'm in a, a great place with my work environment, my work life balance that I fought really hard for, but then throw three kids into that, right? <laughs> and, I, you know, an 11 month old. And so I'm like, Oh, God, you know, when I get sleep, I can get sleep. Um, oh. But but yeah, no, it, it's completely true. And, um, and, and I think just that, um, you know, we haven't reshifted the expectations in, in those high performative careers to acknowledge that, you know, we're human beings in the middle of this. And we've 
digitized it and monetized it and yeah. made the so many things about the capitalistic business model of output that like you know that uh to take a step back and and realize that you know people that are delivering this compassionate care are people first and and just trying to do the right thing and um and at least that's you know what i try to do we'll be back with more with dr adam hill we'll not only get into some fun random questions we'll find out about uh Tom Petty in a deserted island. How do those two things go together? Plus some more insightful stuff from Dr. Hill. So stick around. We'll be right back. Breaking news. This important PSA is brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is your pubic service announcement and the news you've all been waiting for. The Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is now available for purchase in the USA and Canada. This new trimmer was just released only moments ago, and we are one of the first to get our hands on it and share the news. Join over 2 million worldwide who trusted Manscaped with this exclusive offer to you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code KDD at manscaped.com. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance. The craftsmanship and details on the 4.0 are next level. What makes this trimmer different than all the other trimmers, you may ask? A new multi-function on-off switch that can engage a travel lock created for the people who like to travel. The Lawnmower 4.0 gives you the ability to turn the 4K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. The new trimmer even allows you to customize your trim all over through additional guard lengths with sizes 1 through 4. And look-wise, it's sleek with a two-tone matte and gloss finish, even features a hot foil-stamped black chrome Manscaped logo. Show that mower off loud and proud. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code KDD at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code KDD. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. This episode of the Knocking Doors Down podcast brought to you by Podcorn. Yeah, if you're a podcaster and you've yet to hear about Podcorn, it's been phenomenal for us. It allows us to reach out to sponsors that directly correlate with our show's content. Plus, we get to set our own prices and negotiate with the sponsors themselves. It opens up an amazing opportunity for podcasters just like you and us. Not only does it give you sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, but you can also book interview segments, topical discussions, and more. You want to know what my favorite part is, though? There's no middleman. I don't have to go through another company when we want to talk to a sponsor. We talk to the sponsors directly, and so can you, by signing up with Podcorn. It's simple. Podcorn.com to get more info. So if you're like us, and you're a podcaster, and you want to cut out the middleman, no matter how big your podcast is there are tons of opportunities for great sponsors again collaborate with these brands directly without any exclusivities another one of the great things no matter how big or small your podcast is you don't give up any rights to your podcast and podcorn well they're there to support you every step they want to ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work you do for your brands fellow podcasters with podcorn keep this in mind wherever you distribute your show if it's apple 
Apple, Spotify, Google, Pandora, wherever you distribute it, your ads play there and you get credit with Podcorn and the sponsors that work with you. A huge thanks to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode of Knocking Doors Down. Explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast today by signing up at podcorn.com slash podcasters. Again, if you want that link, click it in the podcast description now. Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate because they see it as a, a systemic breakdown and as we, we continue to have all these fights about medical care and how it is to go. And, and at the end of the day, not only, you know, the patients, but oftentimes patients are forgetting that those whom they're dealing with are, are humans too and their own struggles and everything else. And I know I've been guilty in my earlier life. But, you know, I love my pediatric doctor and I remember going into his office, he had Batman and Superman, my favorites, and then I wanted to put him right up there with it, not really understanding, oh, this guy goes home to a family, and, you know, uh, we just forget that sometimes. Yeah, and uh, I think it was alluded to even just in our intro before era, though, too, that, you know, the, the system has so many breaks in it, it's not serving patience the way that it needs to it's been it's so diluted and convoluted now and it's such a a difficult system to navigate and talking about sort of just even being able to get a call back from the doctor or a follow-up or an appointment or sort of things like that our delivery of care model too just isn't working for people and 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 especially in the people that need it the most, we operate in this sick care system instead of a preventative health <laughs> mindset in the U.S. That that honestly, for all of us delivering care, feels so self-defeating. We feel hopeless and mm-hmm. helpless to actually, you know, make a difference in somebody's life. That my friend who's an ER doctor can, you know, can treat somebody who's in you know, potential withdrawals and get them into, you know, acute recovery. And then we're going to send somebody out back living with homelessness with no resources and no job and no, you know, infrastructure to, to get their life back on track. And then the cycle just repeats. And, and that's just heartbreaking Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, that the system feels set up for, for failure. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because it's in so many different situations in our society and culture, as you pointed out, is that oftentimes people don't do any, there's not any self-care and preventative care until sometimes it's a little bit too late. Yeah. And and we don't in, invest in those right on the national strategy level of community resources and community programming. My dad was a small town mental health therapist for 40 years. And I saw every year to the point where he eventually quit and that, you know, his budgets were cut, his resources were cut, his funding was cut, you know, and, and, and that happened year after year, decade after decade. And, and we need to have a serious conversation, not only about, you know, how we criminalize and punish um, addiction in this country, but how we actually bring people, you know, in the communities that they need them with representation, that will fight against the discrimination that we see and lack of access in so many communities of need of getting people community-based resources that work. And, and, you know, and that requires such an overhaul that uh, uh, it's difficult to contemplate it happening, but, you know, I, I hope that, you know, some of that investment happens uh, in my lifetime. 
Absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, we've had some guests on here and these, these gentlemen that uh, an organization in Fresno called Pain, and they primarily, you know, focus with, with the youth, but anyone in general uh, with it. And, uh, you know, they said that perception that uh, the addict alcoholic is the person under the bridge when oftentimes it can be the kid two doors down from mom and dad or the parent two doors down from the kids. And, uh, you know, or it's the doctor. Taking care of your kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's um, it's an unfortunate thing, but we're definitely grateful that you uh, jump on here and help us highlight that and, and bring more awareness to it because that's the only thing we can do in the fight. Yeah. And, and I think it's so important, you know, and to, to highlight voices, to raise voices, to raise awareness. Like that's how things will continue to change. And, you know, and at least for me personally, which I'm very humbled for this opportunity to be with you that, you know, hopefully I can add my voice to that fight. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the lady being, well, not behind Adam, but next to Adam and sometimes out there in the forefront. Uh, What was the, you just really spoke so highly of of your wife during the times of your addiction and and her strength. Uh, What in retrospect, has that meant to you as well as uh, getting involved in programs? Because you, you're still heavily active in your recovery. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, she um, not only is the person who, you know, stood by my side with with grace and an understanding that I can't even begin to fathom and patience, um, but then she also has gone on her own recovery journey over the last decade herself, you know, being involved in Al-Anon and then, you know, just this past week, you know, um, getting connected to a wife who's, you know, working through um, some things with her husband who's, you know, struggling in active addiction, trying to find recovery and, and lending her ear and helping them, you know, talk through that of being a survivor, being somebody who's gone through it on the other side and lived through it. Um, that, you know, now she has her own voice and her own ability to be an ally. Uh, that's really beautiful and powerful and that I never even saw, you know, uh, coming, uh, that I just cherish and love that now I see her reaching out and helping other, other people in that way, you know, um, so I'm, you know, I'm one lucky man. Um, we've been together about almost 14 years now and we'll be married for 11 uh coming up this summer and so you know we were only married for a year or two before most of you know this active suicidality and really active addiction uh took hold and so you know sometimes i'm a stuck with me through it um and, and I think that there's something to say that um, people don't talk about that often, talk about it in recovery rooms sometimes, but um, that you're just rediscovering yourself and you don't know at the end of that whether or not you're meant to be with the person because you just didn't know each other yeah. sober. Yeah. And, and, and for us, that was scary. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we went through, you know, our own marriage counseling and our own process of really working at that and finding out who are we now in our early 30s. Um, well, I was in my early 30s. She's a few years younger than me. But um, of, of that and, and what came of it was just an opportunity to have really open communication and dialogue of our needs, our hopes, our wishes and, and, and you know, 
just like anybody, we have terrible days and great days. <laughs> mm-hmm. and we're holding space for gratitude and all the shit at the same time. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, but I'm just, uh, I feel blessed that, um, you know, she's been here for me and, and I hope, you know, that I show up for her too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so important to point out because, uh, you know, I'm a big statistics guy. It always fascinates me. And, you know, if it's a, um, not that your wife struggle, I'm understanding she didn't struggle with any addiction. It was just you. And so she's doing this work because of your bond and relationship, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah, but, that's incredible. You know, they say couples that uh, where if they're both actively in addiction, one person gets sober, the other doesn't. It's a 0% chance. And oftentimes, if it's, uh, you know, one person is an addict, gets sober, like you said, that self-discovery, I know I've gone through it. I can relate to it. I'm a person that having gotten sober, there was a relationship that now on sober clearly would not have worked. And uh, and it's scary, that unknown, that, uh, that oftentimes us addicts don't like, and we, we do the numbing out because of it. Um, but yeah. it's so important to put out there. It is, and same with friendships, right? You know, I... I lost friendships in in early recovery and um and that's okay that was part of my evolution too of and and getting to see with clarity who are the people that are really going to show up for me and support me and rally for me um and and that was you know actually really empowering to see that and at the time in the first year i was like oh well you know it was really um 15 year friendships that just, you know, went away because those people couldn't respect the fact that I was in sobriety or, you know, kept pushing alcohol on me or, and I just had to walk away from those. And, but boy, what's come of it since and the friendships and just lifelong um, camaraderie that I found in rooms and out of rooms um, makes up for it in spades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can I can definitely relate to that, and, and it's nice because my phone doesn't ring as much, or the text messages don't come in as much. But when they do, like you said, it's people that I show up for and show up for me, and, and that's a blessing to have that change in life. It's like, boy, I don't have to manage all these dysfunctional, fucked up relationships, friendships anymore. It's like things are good. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. Honestly, yesterday I feel like my every text message I got was like from one of my sober friends and, you know, and, and we have a friend who's going through some stuff right now and, you know, who's in the rooms. And, and so a bunch of people just rallying around that person. It's really beautiful to, to see. Yeah. Well, and, and, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no. And, and for me, I mean, right. That's, you know, giving it away is what helps keep me sober. And so, you know, this book to me is an act of that is trying to give it away to somebody else. Um, and I was always struck, you know, hearing that in a room, the first six months of sobriety, this guy with 35 or so years of sobriety said that to me, it was just, thank you for being here. And, you know, you have like, however many days I had, but you being here helps keep me sober. And I'm just grateful for you. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? You know, (laughs) and, and like, and then, but now I see that and I get that, that, you know, I can text somebody who has 21 days in the first thing in the morning and check in with them to see if that's now 22. Mm-hmm. And then that puts me in a mindset of service that, you know, leads through the rest of the day. And, and it's, it's a really beautiful thing of just finding a way to live your life now, um, in, in gratitude and service. Absolutely. 
Well, before we get to some uh, fun random questions, um, kind of selfishly, I would like to know when you got into recovery, what were some of the good routines and, and not only mental health maintenance, physical health maintenance, things that you did that became very effective and continue to evolve for you even to this day, like you said, you know, practicing medical professional in a pandemic, father of three, married, there's the good days, there's the shit days, you know, yeah. how, how do you maintain it now? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is I've had to be adaptable and flexible over time and, you know, my needs change and the ability to meet those needs has changed. And so early in recovery, obviously it was big on daily meetings. It was being in therapy at the time I was on medications. I've actually been off medications now for about five years and um, because I, you know, um, I'm in a space where, you know, I just don't need them. Um, I will go back on them tomorrow if I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, physical exercise, therapy, meetings, um, having some sort of semblance of structure and routine is is big for me. Um, I was big into yoga early in, uh, in, uh, in recovery, like hot yoga. And oh, yoga. I love hot yoga. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, I love it. it. Yeah, me too. And so for that first year, now this was before I had kids, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we had kids and, and so I couldn't go to the hot yoga studio for two hours on a weeknight. Um, and so, you know, we bought gym equipment for our house and did other things where I can work out here. And um, a lot of, a lot of time and mindfulness and reflection and, and journaling. And, um, and so those are, you know, some of the things that continue to work for me. Um, I'll be honest last, you know, before this pandemic hit, I was, I was down to like, you know, a few meetings a month and, and, and that was, you know, what I felt was fine and mm-hmm. it was good routine. Cause I had my right. I mean, I was texting with friends every day, but I just wasn't going to a ton of meetings and with this virtual pivot in the meetings and then just this pandemic and the stress of it and what's happened in our medical workforce and, everything like I'm at like five or six meetings a week now again. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just, you know, it's been the greatest blessing like of this last year, like things were tough last summer when all this hit and we had so much uncertainty. I was, you know, helping craft policies for what do we do if we run out of medical equipment and we have to ration care for patients and all these heavy, heavy things. Right. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I just, you know, I was like, I just got to get back into the rooms, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's just so cool that now with the virtual pivot of this, I go to meetings in Chicago, I can go to meetings in, you know, Louisville, I can go to meetings like, and it's just, I've met people from all over the country in these rooms I would have never met before that now are friends that I'm texting with on a daily basis. It's just super cool that, um, that whole world has been opened. Yeah. Now, my primary one is uh, the majority of the guys are in San Diego and some that left San Diego to Texas. And uh, it was actually a former guest of ours that got me involved with that group and is taking on sponsorship because I, I got away from working the steps. I did that ego-driven thing of I got this. And and boy, the anxiety was getting worse and worse. And it was like, no, I don't fucking got this. And and so I'm with you because these guys are, you know, it's been great, you know. Um, so absolutely, I agree 100% with that. 
Yeah, and that's right. Like, and for me, it was, you know, at the time last summer, six and a half years into continuous sobriety, it was so much more about what you're, we're talking about, just my anxiety and trying to manage or micromanagement, trying to control it again, right? Trying to like, just take back the reins of everything. And, and, and so just being back in, 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 in the volume of like every day has just put me in such a better space of like, you know, I'm going to control what I can control. And um, so it's been such a blessing. Yes, sir. Well, the book for those listening is Long Walk Out of the Woods. Um, you know, it really goes in depth w- with Adam's story. Uh, just it's it's wonderful read. Uh, we highly recommend it. So click the link in the podcast description. It'll take you to the Amazon page that, that you can get it. Uh, Dr. Hill, are you ready for some random whoa, questions? Whoa, 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 oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What did I leave out? I got to ask you a question. Go it's ahead. not a random question. Go ahead. How do you feel about the COVID-19 vaccine? So I I got mine uh, a few months ago. Okay. So definitely in, endorse. Um, and I had the, the Pfizer uh, vaccine and, and had, you know, relatively no effects from it. And so strongly endorse and support that anybody should get it. And um, and so that we can hopefully, you know, get things back to some semblance of normal. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I hope so. I'm not, I'm not against it. I'm not for it. I'm just, I want to educate myself more on it. So I have a couple family members who got it, but they told me it's either 85% or 90% effective, but you still have to wear a mask. You still can't be around. So another part of me is saying, well, you're essentially doing the same thing with or without the vaccine. The rules still are the same so that's why i was just kind of a little hesitant on it like i said i'm not for it i'm not against it i just i really just don't know yeah and a lot of still practicing the social distancing and 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 mask is you know until we reach this level of kind of herd immunization until Mm -hmm. right it's to protect other people and so you know it's still a a a temporizing measure until we reach that level of critical mass and which I hope now with the new Johnson and Johnson and 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 the new rollout strategies that you know we'll get there in, mm-hmm. in the in the next few months I mean that's my my hope I, I saw a stat right now like I think one in four adults uh, in the US that were eligible have been vaccinated as of a few like weeks ago and mm-hmm. so huge progress that was, that's being made yeah. okay Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to be able to, uh, you know, maybe by 4th of July, enjoy some festivities with some public gathering, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, what I hope for, too. We're, you know, I, I miss going to concerts. I miss oh, going yes. to, bas- to basketball games. And, and heck, I mean, for my kids, taking them to the museum and, you know, things that I'm, I'm ready to, to start doing again, even as an introvert. <laughs> yeah, no, same here. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm with you. You know, back with the kids thing too, it's got to be harder for them because we're adults. We can, for the most part, do the best we can in order to keep some kind of normalization during a pandemic. But, you know, kids, they don't really understand or get what's going on. Why can't I go to my friend's house? Why can't we go to the arcade? Why can't we go here or there? So, and I, with my nephew specifically, I see it wearing on them to where they're just getting, they were so extroverted and now they're so introverted to where they don't want to do anything. They don't want to go anywhere. Um, And it's just, yeah, for the kids, it's definitely got to be even more rough. So hopefully we do get back to normal pretty soon, whatever that new normal will be. But 
And you right. know, yeah. back to you know, back to basketball. The Warriors suck now, so tickets would be cheap. <laughs> so they were good before this thing happened, but you know, we'll see what happens. So what I'm hearing is COVID nineteen made the Warriors suck. That's exactly what happened. That's the headline for this episode. <laughs> that in KD leaving. <laughs> that, that'll that's going to be the title. COVID nineteen made the Warriors suck with Doctor Adam Hill. Doctor, you get me. Are you taking new patients? I like you. <laughs> Uh, All right. Um, no, I was gonna, uh, so concerts. What uh, I worked for rock in rock radio for twenty well radio for twenty years. Uh, what are some of the bands you uh, would go see? You by yourself or you and the misses and friends? Yeah. So I'm one of my favorite bands. Actually, a band called Need to Breathe. Like I okay. love uh, them. We've seen them a ton. I'm actually a classic rock guy though too. Some of my favorite people to see like. I mean, obviously, uh, rest in peace, Tom Petty, but yes, you know, yeah. Petty and Springsteen, and um, those are some of the, like my favorite shows to go to to bands like that, and and usually with my dad, even still, you know, to mm-hmm. rock out with with him, um, and and honestly, just any, you know, one of my buddies is in a band. Um, they uh they don't perform anymore but we just used to love to go to their shows at local venues right sure. just to support local artists just like get out there and and see some of those people and honor their work and so i just love live music in general and um but definitely more of a, a rock guy yeah no i hear you on that growing up my mom was the led zeppelin eric clapton pink floyd and my dad was like the kiss acdc metallica mm-hmm. so i got the best of both worlds and that's still my jam just classic rock let me, let me hit you with a story real fast sure so, yes uh, in uh i believe i was in late high school might have been early college and uh, but uh so metallica was touring around and with um uh with corn and um gosh who else were they uh it was like system, the s- system, system of a down summer sanitarium tour yes the summer sanitarium yeah. tour right and james hatfield got in an accident of technics in the night before show and like burned his hand and got hospitalized so we go down to kentucky speedway to see this show system of down corn um, there's one other band there and they make an announcement, you know, James Hatfield's not going to be here tonight, but the show is going to go on. And so, uh, you know, Jonathan Davis sang like Metallica songs. Oh, that's sang, dope. Yeah. He sang one and like, so in system of down lead singer, I forget his name, you know, saying like sanitarium. Search and tanking, like, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was like the best concert ever. We that's, got to see, yeah. you know, all of Metallica, but with lead singers from all these other bands. And that's so cool. Just, I mean, that's not cool. Was, he burned his hand, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> he, was fine. he was fine. But, but they were so, so then not only did they put on this show, but then they, all the ticket holders got to go see a free Metallica show the next year too. How oh, nice. Yeah. So then we got to see him again, like the following year. It's pretty sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. Metallica has always treated their fan base uh, so great. I've probably seen them, I think, at least a half a dozen times live. Uh, you know, saw them on the last tour, and I was there because we're so close to San Francisco. The night before the Super Bowl, where everybody was was rallying to have them play the Super Bowl, and of course, NFL and TV, uh, no thank you. And so they're like, "We'll put on a concert." It was so awesome. Love that band. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, Random questions. Random questions before we give Dr. Hill the final word. If you could have 
dinner with just one person living or not, who would it be and why? This could be anybody, you know, fam- from Elvis to anyone you, anyone. Oh, that's a great question. Um, honestly, somebody that I just love and respect and would love to pick their brain uh, is Barack Obama. Mm. I, I just think that, you know, uh, that would be a, a dinner table conversation I would I would love to have. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I will not do my Barack Obama impersonation. Yeah. He's tired of it. We've heard it a million times. <laughs> Go back to the last episode's Dr. Hill. You could hear it. <laughs> uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, murder mystery TV shows. Yeah. That is, uh, you know, I- anything like 2020 Dateline, Homicide Hunter, like that. I don't know. That's a... Watching that stuff as I fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this isn't real, but what about Blacklist? You ever get into Blacklist on Netflix? I'm, yeah, I, I'm aware of it with James Spader. Oh yeah, uh, but ne- never actually watched it. My dad was a huge fan. Oh my gosh, yeah. James Spader's fantastic in it. He's amazing. Couldn't have picked a better actor to play his role. Yeah, I've heard great things. I I, I like uh, the uh, the real mystery stuff. Sure, like, sure, the real stuff. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. All right. If they were to make a movie about you, who would you cast to play yourself? Anybody famous in the world, who would you cast to play you in a movie? So my sister made a joke when I wrote this book that if, you know, there's ever made a movie of the book, it would be uh, John Krasinski from, uh, did I say it right, from The Office? Yep. John Krasinski. Oh, Jim. Yeah, Jim Helper. Jim Helper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, I think I'll stick with that. Okay. I could see that because he's a, you know, it's funny because he did like the office and then he did the Tom Clancy show on, on Amazon. And I was That's like, pretty good show. yeah, Jack Ryan. Right. And I'm like, ah, I like his work and I'll check it out. I'm like, wow, this dude's got acting chops. Holy hell. You know? So I could see that. Uh, I could see that. That would be good. Uh, favorite hobby of any kind. Um, I mean, honestly, it's it's definitely running or working out, like um, just getting out and you know getting lost in some fresh air on a trail, or um, you know just getting in a good workout is uh, maybe not a hobby, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely the thing that I do in my spare time when I can. Uh, the second being anything outdoors with the kids, for yeah, sure. absolutely, absolutely. All right, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only take what or well you're stuck okay if you're on a deserted island you can only take one movie and one album what would those be oh boy um so i mean one of my favorite movies is probably shawshank redemption mm, great movie um, we're searching for bobby fisher i don't know i've always loved that movie which isn't as a popular of, of one um the album, uh, let's see. I, I know it's probably not like, I, I love the Tom Petty Wildflowers album. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, I know it's probably not his most popular album, but that was one that came out like in the formative years of mm-hmm. you know my teenage years that I just always loved. Um, so maybe I'll choose that one. Yeah, no, Perfect. that's great. Well, Dr. Hill, uh, we like to leave the uh, guest with the, the last words. Uh, anything of encouragement that you can lend to folks, not only obviously 
through this time and the, as a pandemic, hopefully we get back to the quote unquote norm, um, but also those uh, seeking recovery in recovery or maybe a loved one of theirs that, that uh, you know, has an a- uh, addict as a loved one. Yeah, I would just, you know, love to be able to remind, um, you know, that everyone has a story and it, it may not be evident or obvious on the surface, but, you know, that all of our stories matter and that each one of our stories deserves a, a loving, compassionate, empathic ear and a, and a space to be heard. And so, you know, I, I hope with that, that people will be able to find their own spaces to seek help and, and treatment when they need it and, and just encourage people to, to reach out their hand and, and know that there's so much hope and beauty on this path of recovery in the future and that you can reclaim your life um, in such a miraculous way. And if you just keep showing up, um, and, and reach out your hand. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Hill. This is uh, this has been a real pleasure. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you both. It's been, it's been wonderful being with you and thanks for highlighting all these stories and, and making a difference in the world. So thank you. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Dr. Adam Hill, thank you very much again for being on the Knocking Doors Down podcast. Uh, I ordered his book too, by the way, Mikey. Did you? Yeah. So did I. Did you? No. I know you didn't. Yeah, I'll just borrow yours when you're done. You don't read. I don't read. I read the Knocking Doors Down book. This is true. Yeah, I did read that. I'm not a reader. Yeah. I'd rather make a movie out of it. I watched it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of the Knocking Doors Down book, that's uh, from Carlos Vieira. You can get that by clicking the link in the podcast description. If you want to hear the antithesis, antithesis uh, for the Knocking Doors Down podcast, it is laid out there in Carlos's book. He talks about his struggles with his cocaine addiction, what he did to help him get sober, including some uh, stock car racing, which I know he's got some more races on the calendar throughout the year. But uh, click that link in the description right now. And uh, again, we thank you guys for listening. We thank uh, Dr. Hill for his time. Absolutely. Really insightful stuff. How's the anxiety going? It's there. Yeah. It's good, but it's there. It's kind of always. It's not going anywhere. Are you doing anything different to manage it? Uh, No. Working out, trying to eat better, and trying to sleep more. Sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I got do? I got outside. I'm finding the little the connecting with the earth thing works for me. I know it sounds hippy dippy do, but just uh, <laughs> look, pal. Don't don't give me shit. All right, <laughs> shove it. No. So last night, uh, my daughter and her best friend were uh, rollerblading. So I went out front, got on the front lawn barefoot, and something about that calmed me down. So it's kind of doing a little bit more of that connecting with nature that seems to work with me with my anxiety. Hey man, whatever works for you. It's some people do that, other people, you know, do the same thing, but on the beach, ride a bike, ride a skateboard, mm. whatever helps you, 
rock and roll. Yeah. Do it. Uh, anybody listening, you got some good techniques for your uh, your anxiety? Hey, shoot us a message, beat on- uh, I need to hear it. Yeah, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Knocking Doors Down on Twitter. It's at KDD Media Company. Drop us a message if you've got some good methods for dealing with your anxiety. Anything else, Mr. Naraki? No, I'm going home. On that note, keep knocking doors down. Fifty-one fifty is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams, and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say "what if." Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being fifty-one fifty is committing to that long, hard road—that road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's fifty-one fifty. If you're living the fifty-one fifty lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the race for autism, race to end the stigma, and race to be drug free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit carlosvierafoundation.org today. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments suggestions or correction of errors privacy is of the utmost importance to us for those wishing anonymity people places and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests this website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony no guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website in no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content, establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.